This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Pacing your game. Police militarization. More gumshoe masterclass. And shortening the Civil War. So, Ken, the auspicious moment is upon us. I've been talking about Feng Shui 2 for nearly a year now. The Kickstarter date approacheth. Yes, we'll be locking and loading on Wednesday, September 17th at 8 p.m. With the usual one-month window? Yeah, the campaign will run until Friday, October 17th. So, whether you're an early adopter or a last-minute roll under the descending blast door as the bullets fly type, the fine team at Atlas Games is ready for you. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is. It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultraviolet heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood-spattered gunplay, it features the key war. Yes, the players fight across key time periods to control key sites, of geomantic power and thus history itself. And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouser? I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer on a bullet-strewn path to redemption? I am nothing if not an everyday hero. Well, look out, because there's a cyborg gorilla headed this way. People will be glad to finally jump on this. You've been whipping them into a froth on the social media. I've never had so much excitement around a project in development before, so it's not about whether we'll do it, but how much we and the backers together can use the funding process to awesome it up. So the question is, how amazing a realization of feng shui can you make it? And the answer starts on Wednesday, September 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. When the gun goes off, rush to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, Action Movie Role-Playing, or Robin D. Laws. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Michael Bowman asks Ken and Robin, how about talking about pacing in running sessions? What can a GM do, but also what things can players do to help get a good flow? Robin, what can you do to help get a good flow? Okay, well, let's start out with a GM bit then. The first thing is, to the extent that you can prepare, prepare. Now, if you are running an improvised game, that sort of helps fix itself because you are kind of in control of the pacing and uh, hopefully, you know, you're not running an improvised game if you are slow at improvising. So you can kind of do more with, with pacing by reacting to the balls that the players throw you than uh, you might be able to do if you're running a prepared adventure, whether it's one that you prepared yourself or one that you're running from a published book. So uh, because uh, I think the second one is harder to do, let's focus on that. You need to have as much of it pre-read and in your mind before the players arrive as you can. So you can reasonably predict which areas in the adventure that the players are going to go into and uh, refresh your memory. Presumably you've read the adventure at least once before, perhaps a couple of times, but it never hurts as you're waiting for everybody to arrive to briefly 
look at what you're going to need to do, what bits of text you're going to want to paraphrase, what handouts you're going to need to, to pass around, anything that's going to take a little bit of time to introduce, be aware of it ahead of time. So you're skipping that part where you go, uh, and then you're flipping through the book and looking at your notes. So the, the, as much as you can minimize that as possible, I think would be the, the number one key to pacing. Uh, Ken, what's your big key to pacing? The big key to pacing is a wristwatch. Um, I know how long the game is going to last. I know that the players are going to want to leave around 10 at night, so I have to get to somewhere by 10 at night. And if I have not gotten myself set up, I, I look at the watch, it's like, oh, it's a quarter to nine. I need to start moving towards something that will happen in a sort of climactic way. It may not be the big climax of the adventure, it may not even be a climactic scene, but it should be something that the players can go out on knowing that they've had a fantasy adventure as opposed to pizza, right? That there's that something has happened that uh, makes it a, a session of the game. And with the kinds of games that I run where there's a lot of uh, investigation, a lot of touching the world and letting it touch back and think back and forth. Sometimes there isn't uh, pacing as you'd recognize it in a horror film. We don't always have the luxury of rising action necessarily. If the characters really want to know what's inside the circus tent, you have to sort of dance with them to the music they hear in their head. But it's incumbent on you as the conductor to make sure that at some point the brass and the kettle drums come in so that they feel like they were in something, and that, you know, is just a matter of, of time spent at the table. Now, if you have the luxury either of running a prepared se session that you've already run or something that uh, you're more familiar with the beats of, you can start measuring it out a little more. If you're running, say, a, a classic F20 game, you may say the first fight should take an hour, and then you check your watch, and it's like, well, that first fight should be about over now. It's time to either have the bad guys break or, or have them start to... Um, uh, run away or disappear or whatever happens, then you need to, you know, you can you can play with the players, and once they start visibly getting antsy for the next fight, you can start adding in traps and wandering monsters and whatever, and then you build it up to the next big set piece that you have uh, pre-plotted and pre-worked out. If you don't have something as formulaic as standard F20, then it really does need to be much more, like I say, a dance with the players, in which the players are moving in a direction, and you need to be alert to the direction they're moving and either prep some rising action, build a ramp under them, or head them off from that direction and lure them back around to where uh, you have something really exciting and, and, and juicy planned for them, or best of all cases, dance with them and wherever you wind up going, make sure that there's always something for the players to be doing and to be asking themselves what's next. Because once the players have stopped asking questions, once the players have stopped moving forward, that's when pacing is dead, right? That's that's your universal sign, is that they're just, you know, hashing over evidence that they got an hour ago, or they're, something is happening where the, the if it were if it were a TV show, you'd just be TiVoing fast forward. If it were a movie, you'd be cutting pages out of the script, because just nothing is, is happening uh, narratively. Right. You mentioned uh, watching and seeing if the players are getting antsy, and that is my thing I always say, right? The, the number one skill a GM can pick up is the ability to read the room and to sense whether the players are engaged with what's going on or whether they are getting bored. And sometimes the complicating factor is that some people are engaged and other people are getting bored. But you have the sense that the room collectively uh, is paying attention and is happy with what's going on. You may set aside the pacing that you had imagined. You might have planned a fight to happen at the hour. But if they're all just really 
uh, enjoying hanging out at, at the tavern and learning all about the uh, uh, backstories of the goblins, and they decide to go and get involved in a chariot race. Those are not the things that you wanted to happen or rather anticipated what happened, but they're the things that the players have chosen to be interested in. So you then switch gears and make that the big hour item where, you know, see what can I build out of this that's going to escalate, that's going to make this uh, seem bigger and more exciting and seem to go somewhere. So if you're focusing in on the uh, goblins telling you about their folklore, well, at about the hour mark, something happens where suddenly there's stakes to knowing the goblin folklore and a goblin demigod shows up or the chariot races begin. But there, the players have chosen to be engaged, and that's pretty easy to deal with. Also, pacing, I think, is a matter of, of looking at the things that cause players to disengage. And often... That happens when the players kind of take control of the game away from you and focus on things that they think are important but don't actually interest them. Uh, so, for example, there's often a syndrome where the players separate, uh, or rather the characters separate and go off in different directions to investigate things, and then they start worrying about the exact logistics by which they contact each other and where they meet up. Now, of course, in a modern or futuristic game, they call each other on their cell phones or they teleport to the location. But in an older game, you know, set in the 30s or in a quasi-feudal world, suddenly they're worrying about how exactly they can get in touch with each other. Although they're focusing on it, it's not actually probably interesting to them when they achieve it. I generally just try to insert a cut, as you suggested earlier, and say, okay, well, through means that we don't care about, you're together and you're at the flame pits. And so that you can do exactly what writer fiction would do or a screenwriter in that they jump ahead and skip the boring bits. And uh, the difficulty comes when one person is interested in something like dickering with the shopkeeper and everybody else is starting to roll their eyes. And in that case, you have to sort of go with the will of the majority and uh, jump ahead because if everybody gets uh, 25 minutes a session to do the thing that only they care about, most of the players are going to be bored throughout. But let's turn that on its head as the question suggested. As a player in a game, what can you do to help the GM move the pacing along. Well, I think as a player, you have to be able to get a sense likewise, I mean, not of when the GM is frustrated, because the GM might be frustrated with your inability to find, you know, the uh, the, the main plot, uh, and you're still having fun as a group, but your sense that the story isn't moving. If you hear yourself say the same thing twice, that should be assigned to you as the player that you're done with that conversation, that it's time to move forward. And that might be because you've said the same thing twice to an NPC, trying to get them to spill the beans about, you know, the, the goblins. Or it might be because you've said the same thing twice to the other players when you're arguing about what direction to, to travel um, now that you've found um, uh, the Under Temple. And what you need to do is either just go along uh, with, you know, the majority, if you're the minority, or say something on the order of, Guys, we've been over this and over this. Let's roll a die. Let's flip a coin. Let's just get moving, because you know the times are times are wasting, and um, uh, iron rations don't last forever, or whatever. Right? You you need to be able to keep the game moving, ideally in character, but if necessary, out of character, because no game in my experience as a GM has ever suffered from being paced too fast. The, the problem is always that uh, things are slowing it down. And sometimes that's the GM not being prepared, as you say, or fumbling something or making up a, a hash out of explaining stuff. But as a player, I mean, they're just 
you are more players than GM. So if there's one fail point, it's statistically more likely to be a player. And and so it's your job as a player A to not be that guy. And B, when someone is that guy, say, hey, Carl, maybe we can put a pin in this and talk about it after we open the door into the next room or after we've got more information or after you've killed that goblin already or whatever it is. Uh, and you just, you know, don't, don't be opposing Carl. You, the, your goal is not to beat Carl. Your goal is to get Carl and you to the next part of the adventure, the next exciting thing that happens. And that you can, you know, ideally use your own interpersonal skills or your own role-playing uh, savvy to figure out how best to do that. But that's sort of your obligation as a player is if you're bored, you can change that even more easily than the GM can in some cases. So recognize that. Right. That is. A, I want to reiterate that because that is method number one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven that <laughs> you as a player can use to improve the pace of your games, which is to get your say in when there's a discussion among the group as to which way you want to go and what choice you want to make. But after that, be the mediator, be the facilitator, not the one who's dragging his heels and trying to force the group in one direction or another. Be the person who says, okay, Jim and Maya, you want to go to the tavern and learn about the goblins. Brick and Dev, you want to head over and uh, fight the skeletons. Uh, it seems uh, kind of even, so I'm going to cast the deciding vote. Let's go hit the skeletons. Or however you want to be the one who lets everybody talk, has their say, and then you're the one who moves things to a decision. And anybody who's ever been in a meeting in the real world uh, knows that there's the, the meetings die without that person. Uh, but there's always someone who's, if possible, be the one to sort of bring things to a conclusion and move on to the next uh, thing, which is probably going off and hitting something or exploring something or solving a mystery, you should be always thinking, how quickly can we get this discussion done uh, with everybody getting their say and moving on to the next thing? Another thing that you as a player can do in a, a Crunchy Bits game is to know your Crunchy Bits and know your rules. If you are stopping in the middle of an action to look up what your spells do or... Uh, looking at the rules in any way, you are stopping the session dead. So if you think that you're going to, you know, if you've got X number of spells in an F20 game, know those spells or have them copied out on a sheet of paper so that you have them uh, ready as you need them. Occasionally, you will draw on some weird, obscure rule where you need to stop, and that's part of the social contract of having a crunchier game. But the more knowledge that you can bring to your uh, to the table about the stuff that you would otherwise have to look up, that's another huge time suck where the energy of the room just comes to a crashing halt when anybody has to crack open a rule book. Yeah, knowing the rules is just a good general. I mean, I think that that goes beyond pacing. That goes beyond. I mean, that goes to clarity of play. That goes to all manner of virtues in 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 gaming. That uh, just either knowing the rules really well or knowing that it doesn't really matter if that was a plus one or a plus two flanking bonus, and you can work it out, you know, later on. And um, uh, if you got hosed on the flanking bonus this time, the GM should give you a Benny or a hero point or something to let you get a free unhose next time you're in the next room with the different goblins or whatever it is. And the, the, the agreement that moving the game forward is a, is a virtue and a, and a goal in itself, as opposed to necessarily being the best darn elven ranger or the best darn rest of the universe you can be is I think something that both GMs and players tend to forget, but without moving 
no game is particularly enjoyable, regardless of how good your roleplay is or how good your uh, GMing skills are otherwise, I would say. I mean, pacing is, is one of those really cardinal virtues that if you don't have it, it you know, you can, you can wind up with some, some fairly good, you know, uh, I guess, Im- immersive, uh, stay there, talk to each other type gaming, but it's not going to feel like the game that... Uh, that it's not going to feel like what the designer designed most times, and it's often not going to feel like what the rest of the players showed up for, because it's very hard to do those sorts of scenes in groups unless uh, the group has already agreed that this session is just going to be the dinner party or whatever. And another thing that kills pacing is a sandbox-style game where you are invited to poke the world and see uh, how it pokes you back, where the players show up not knowing what they want to poke. So while you're driving or walking or on the bus to the game session, think, uh, based on what you did last week, what the one cool thing that you want to do that week to get things back rolling again might be. And then evaluate how much it plays with the rest of the group and how much it subverts the rest of the group. So that if your idea of a cool thing is something that you know is going to frustrate all the other players and get them in opposition to you in what is a cooperative game rather than something like Fiasco or or Drama System or one of the or Apocalypse World, one of the games that's more about conflict. But if it's a cooperative uh, game as F20 in its default state is, think of something that everybody else is going to take your idea and build on it and think that it's cool rather than have to fight you on it. Yeah, I, I think that sandboxing is its own sor- it has its own sort of set of, of challenges as a pacing environment because so much of the fun of that is letting the player characters find their own rhythm and find their own footing. Um, I think that once we've opened up the sandbox to sandboxing, though, um, that sort of takes us out of the world of pacing. Is, is there something um, that we want to well, talk about? The sandbox games can have a a slow or a fast pace. And that's all about how proactive you are, whether you're choosing to be proactive in the other side of the spectrum in sort of mission driven adventures. The thing I would say to pick up the pace is uh, accept the, the darn premise of the adventure. (laughs) Don't spend the first half hour going. So why are we getting on the plane anyway? I mean, a GM who's good at pacing will start with you on the plane, as I think we talked about last week, but don't be one of those players who folds your arms and requires that the GM petition you for the right to actually start the storyline in a mission-oriented game. Be the one who finds the reason why you want to do that and helps talk other recalcitrant players into accepting the mission. Yeah, I think that the the real sort of... Yeah, what do I want to say? The, 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 the real goal in pacing, though, is not so much there at the beginning. I mean, at the beginning, yes, if no one's there to play, then there won't be much of a pace, there won't be much of an anything. But I think pacing comes when you know some some significant plurality of of gamers believes that something is happening when nothing is happening and it's it's very rare that everyone in the game is similarly uh is on the same page that things are going slow because 9 times out of 10 you can fix that uh and you do even unconsciously but i i think that pacing a lot of it comes uh with not necessarily not just reading the room like you talk about but reading you know, finding the, the 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 sort of the bottleneck. Who doesn't know that we've got enough information? Who does? Who you know? What hasn't the GM said to move things along? The GM always has the option of you know bringing in the Chandlerian two men with a gun yeah. or presenting 
some other new piece of information or saying two hours later, the chimes of Big Ben have told uh, seven o'clock telling you that the sun has set and now it is werewolf time on the streets of London. And so you can, you know, you can move the pace along in a lot of ways as the GM. But as a player, you have a, um, uh, a, a smaller arsenal of methods. And the trouble is that one arsenal uh, or one uh, arrow in that quiver might be I go looking for more story, but then you're suddenly the guy who's leaving the party and preventing unified action against a problem. The the upside of that is let's go looking for more story. Let's a bunch of us go and find more information because very often when you do have a pacing problem, it's because the players have decided to discuss their options without collecting all the information that the GM imagined that they would have to work with when deciding what to do. Um, And so, and often players will choose to, uh, go off to a headquarter, an impregnable headquarters that no one else can bother them at, which makes it harder for the GM to uh, have their Chandlerian henchmen show up. So as a player, be the guy who uh, or the gal who says, we, we can't figure this out. It seems so obviously we're missing a piece of the puzzle because as soon as we knew what was going on here, we would be able to, to work out what the obvious thing to do is. And so, again, be the person who says, let's all go and do this. Be the one who suggests actions uh, rather than shooting down other people's possible actions or just uh, speculating endlessly without actually doing anything. And since there would be a great irony in going on and on in a segment about pacing, I think it's time to uh, ourselves go and get more information about what the next hut contains. The whiteboard with the open cases on the wall and the sounds of scofflaws and scoundrels in the cells back in the back tell us we've once more opened up the crime blotter our occasional segment on the world of true crime and police work and how it intersects with genre and gaming storytelling this week i thought we would talk about something that is all the talk after the incident in ferguson missouri where a police force in its attempt to end protests and unrest surrounding a police shooting, rolled with, and in the words of uh, one military veteran on Twitter, uh, they rolled heavier than we did in Fallujah. So this is police militarization, the trend by which police forces, uh, particularly in the United States, but I think probably in a lot of places, are beginning to, uh, at least in their equipment list, more and more uh, resemble military units. And we've seen uh, this go uh, badly uh, awry in, in Ferguson, where the people who are involved in the situation are unable to de-escalate it. But this begins in, I think, a couple of... uh, It's one of those stories where a couple of things that kind of make sense in isolation all come together and uh, you get a, a bad result from it. So as I understand it, a couple of the big impetuses or impeti or whatever it is behind the move to heavily arm the police in sort of a paramilitary fashion. The first was that big bank robbery in LA that was fictionalized in the movie Heat where the robbers had this incredible arsenal and engaged in this horrible firefight with the police who they out-equipped. And also in the aftermath of Columbine, there was more and more pressure on uh, SWAT teams who until then had been, uh, the protocol was to just sort of surround an area and wait for things to play out. Well, if you've got active shooters and victims inside the area that you've created your perimeter around, there's an obvious pressure from the public to say, well, why can't you 
go in and do anything about it. And so both of these became factors in the move toward police militarization. Can Are there other factors that you would point to as, as bringing this about? Well, I think one of the big huge factors is the, you know, the war on drugs, right? The, uh, the notion that there is a federal style campaign to bring down all drug dealers everywhere in America. And this, of course, is one of the many brilliant ideas that President Nixon foisted on the country. And that sort of happened right around the same time as we had the last spate of, of major race riots in America in the mid to late 60s. And a lot of city mayors thought, well, if suddenly we have a war zone in our cities, we need to have elite warriors within the police department who can go into sort of bad situations. So it goes before the, the Northfield uh, bank robbery in the, I think that was the late 80s or early 90s. And it goes, you know, it, it, it that's what the SWAT teams come out of is right. that even just the word war is going to bring about this framing eventually this framing exactly which is you know again classic you know goes back to woodrow wilson and the notion of the of the equivalent of war against all of social problems um but the uh but the, but the swat teams come out of that urban riot uh, situation that we had in the in the 60s and then the sort of widespread of them and a lot of things that are part and parcel of the militarization of police practice, such as the no-knock raid, come out of the war on drugs, and the notion that there is specifically federal cover for it. And then after the Department of Homeland Security is created, uh, speaking of things foisted on us by not particularly intelligent uh, presidents, we, we get a sort of deliberate bureaucratic interest in passing out military gear to uh, police forces. Previously, you would sort of get it on the on the down low or the or the back end. But the notion, I think, Homeland Security is worried that Al Qaeda is going to suddenly, you know, magic up um, an entire caliphate somewhere in, you know, I don't know, Jackson, Mississippi, or somewhere, and they have to have we have to have uh, a a massive military presence to crush any sort of of domestic uprising, which is nonsense. We have a massive military presence to crush domestic uprisings. It's called the National Guard, and it's an inherently political move because it requires a governor who is up for re-election to say, yes, this is bad enough that I'm going to risk getting unelected to do it. Right. And there's all kinds of uh, financial incentives here that really push things in, in a bad direction, too, because, A, there's all sorts of defense contractors who are very happy to either have the military sell their second-hand gear to police forces so that they mm -hmm. can then sell the new fancy stuff to the military or uh, sell uh, equipment directly to the uh, police forces. And the police forces themselves, now because of the regulations from the war on drugs in particular, but not just that, have the ability to extract money from the people that they are policing in order to buy more stuff and more equipment. And it turns out that, for example, in Ferguson, the percentage of people who just live in this actually pretty small town who owe a big chunk of fines due to uh, small charges that the police have laid on them is really high, that it's a big chunk of their budget is charging people with minor crimes. I, I and read then, somewhere that the per capita, per capita, the citizens of Ferguson paid or owe 315 or $350 in fines. Every single citizen is basically paying a VIG to get to live in Ferguson, which does not sound like a super great deal to begin with, but is... You know that that should be your 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 not even your your alarm bell. That should be your your freaking everything is wrong bell. Uh, that you've got a functional culture of extortion 
that is already working, you know, at this sort of permanent city bureaucracy level. And the fact that, you know, like you say, that there's this, there are financial interests. There's also, of course, the financial interest in the war on drugs because asset forfeiture and asset seizure is another big way that police departments uh, pay for stuff is that they go into the drug dealers, whatever, and they seize their car and they sell it at auction or they get to drive it around or whatever it is. And this is another incentive. And one can argue that bad drug dealers shouldn't get to keep their, you know, BMW or whatever. That's a different argument. But giving the police a financial incentive to go get stuff from citizens just seems like short-circuiting any sort of rational check and balance. Right, especially with... with the, and there's an incredibly low standard of proof in most of those yeah. cases. And, and because of the... Generally, and again, and again, when you talk about a well-meaning idea that sort of is metastasized with other well-meaning ideas to create a really terrible idea, the notion that you can't sue government workers in the cause of their duties. You can't sue a cop if he, you know, knocks over your door while he's raiding your house. But you now you can't sue a cop if he knocks over your door and he was raiding your house by accident. Or if he was raiding your house with a whole bunch of M16s to prosecute a non-violent crime like possession of ecstasy or whatever. Right. And decided to shoot all your dogs. as uh... Exactly. Yeah. The, the number of dogs that are apparently unindicted co-conspirators in America is skyrocketing. I think that that's our real problem. Al-Qaeda has been recruiting America's dogs or some idiocy. Right. And and uh, Ferguson isn't the only, is, is probably not even the, the most bent police power structure in that way. There's a jurisdiction in Florida that was sucking all of these fines out of people. They would target particular uh, members of the underclass and charge them with trespassing for working in the store that they worked in. You know, that's beyond measures that would lead a police force to become corrupt in essence, to just flat out corruption. Uh, and, and there's another crazy story uh, in the uh, extremely ironically named Palestine, Arkansas, where a military Humvee that belonged to the police department was stolen uh, by a local scofflaw and uh, went off on a joyride and a whole bunch of their M16s are missing and stuff because when you take all of this military material and give it to people small-town police forces that aren't well-trained to use them or to know when not to use them. Oddly enough, they're also not well-trained to secure them. So yeah. I guess this can bring us into our the bit where we try and... Gamify this. Gamify this, is that uh, now you've got a, a justification in your uh, modern-day crime story or uh, for either the, the cops themselves can be the, the adversaries, or in this case, uh, you can have extravagantly armed local idiot criminals because they have uh, appropriated the uh, police material for themselves. Yeah, the, um, the, the possibilities of this kind of thing, I mean, it's, you, you, you've heard me talk about how some countries just seem to, be, by bad fortune, become ideal role-playing game settings, and one does not want American cities to become such ideal role-playing game settings. One wishes one had to add vampires to it, uh, like uh, White Wolf did, before uh, Chicago became awful enough that you could reliably set a role-playing game adventure there. But I, th I think that you have the possibility, uh, first of all, it, it really creates, what you were saying, a, a sat more satisfying thriller if when you go after the, the local police chief who's uh, in league with the vampires or Cthulhu or uh, whoever he is, that you have to bypass, you know, um, military-grade weaponry. That that ups the, the, the scales of the fight really successfully. It also gives you a source for military-grade weaponry if you think that, you know, something, you know, a Zothian is bubbling down in the sewers or a Shoggoth, and you're like, well, 
We know that thermobaric warheads probably would take it down. I wonder if the cops have any. And then that gives you a great, you know, reason that you can never go to the cops with any more of your Cthulhu problems is because they want you for that arsenal ro- robbery when you broke into the precinct house and stole all the thermobaric warheads. Right. And uh, and you can obviously just flip that on its head and have the cultists be the ones who, well, uh, A, you can have the cops be the cultists, as you suggested, yeah. or the cultists can have just... Uh, raided the police arsenal and the police are impeding your investigation because of course this is a huge scandal they don't want to own up to the uh, dhs that they've lost all of their stuff or at least they're waiting to come up with a good reason for losing all the stuff so they can get more stuff Mm -hmm. so that you have to the outer layer of the mystery is you know the cops are impeding you as you try to find out uh, who stole the Humvees and uh, even bigger grade vehicles, which, by the way, apparently are also hell on the roads. That if you yeah. have a police jurisdiction where they're driving these military vehicles around uh, like they're an occupying force, even if nothing overtly horrible is happening, your taxes are going to go up because they're wrecking your roads. And uh, um, maybe they'll just have to up the fines for everybody else in order to, to pay for those roads. Since political patronage in many cases is uh, expended by giving out road construction uh, contracts. This could once more be one of those systems where one hand is washing the other. Another thing that's that seems to be happening, and to the extent to which it is happening gets argued about, but government agencies that you wouldn't think have SWAT teams wind up having SWAT teams. There was a there was a joke on uh, on Miami Vice many many years ago where I think it was Harry Shearer played a fish and wildlife agent and he was you know standing the road holding his badge up and saying freeze fish and wildlife and then you were all supposed to laugh at how funny that was. But now fish and wildlife has got you know at the very least they have armed law enforcement people attached to fish and wildlife and whether or not they're full on militarized SWAT teams or not you get argued back and forth about you know by what. What do you mean by fully militarized? Um, we're only a we're only a light infantry unit, right? And and if it hasn't, and the way things are going, if it isn't true now, it will be in two years, right? And it certainly can be true in your game, yeah. uh, even if you don't necessarily, you know, you can't go on the on the Department of Education website and find out what their SWAT team is armed with. You can certainly pretend that they have one, or that they are, you know, borrowing one from you know, the Department of Commerce or something equally ridiculous. Another thing that you could do in the game is that you could pose as super militarized elements of an obscure agency as you go in sort of Delta Green style to take out the vampires or the Cthulhu entities or or whatever it is. So that gives you the opportunity to, you know, these people are extraordinarily crazily armed. Oh, they're they're the local cops. <laughs> it's, it's Barney Fife, no problem. And then you can go on about your business. And uh, so all you have to do is get some magnetic decals um, that make you look like a, a generic sheriff's department, and then you're uh, you're good to go. Yes, everyone wears the the, the big uh, rain slicker with SWAT written on the back or whatever uh, when they go in. Yeah, the the notion of using that as cover is one. I think that you can also have some interesting conspiracy on conspiracy action where you are. Uh, the rats in the walls, and by creating the tension within the, and it can be either the tension between the evil militarized SWAT guy and the good community policing guy, or it can be more realistically the tension between the evil militarized SWAT guy and the evil community policing guy who is in league with the local gangs who are also, you know, getting military equipment by buying it from the corrupt uh, you know, wholesaler or whatever, and that there is a a situation where you can sort of put a, a player's characters in an ICO Jimbo position, where there is this uh, this town that is under threat and under terror, and your characters are inserted 
to dismantle it, and whether that threat is the realistic one of a local government gone amok, as in Bell, California, financially, or uh, Ferguson militarily, or Detroit in every imaginable sense, you can, you know, play take those and just add the supernatural as a um, uh, as a way to get gamers to play it. I guess right, and you could also just take the situation where there is, you know, protests or uh, have gone completely out of out of hand and the police are manifesting a heavy duty uh, presence and you've got that sort of situation that Ferguson had at its height and then just have that be the complicating factor in an Terror or uh, modern Cthulhu or, or Knight's Black Agents uh, scenario where there, it's not directly involved with the creature or supernatural thing or sorcerer's guild that you've come to town to get rid of, but it's a huge impediment to what would normally be your ease of action if there's a curfew and there's uh, tear gas all around on the streets. And of course, uh, the evil bad guys who are, you know, didn't even necessarily cause the situation, but they're going to make maximum use of it as cover while they further whatever their uh, opportunistic goal is. And of course, you can use it as cover too. I mean, you were talking about being able to pose as some, you know, other sheriff's department or something. That's you have a, a big chaotic situation, and you show up as five guys who are also in combat armor, also in the helmets, and also have a, a Humvee and machine guns. And you're driving around, and you can blend in in a way that you might not be able to under more normal circumstances, or at least it would get radioed in. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're from the Highway Patrol. Didn't Detective <laughs> Mitchell right. uh, uh, tell you we'd be coming? Anyway, we'll, we'll sort that out later. There's guys over there. Yeah, get them. Yeah. They're holding signs. Or you can obviously use that as the backdrop that if you didn't create it, you can take advantage of it. This is your chance to go in and steal the all-seeing eye of Agamotto from the from the uh, museum while the museum cops are busy fighting fires and vandalism all over the museum campus. Well, I think we've taken a disquieting story and uh, found a way to sort of treat it and explore it and turn it upside down through the lens of pop culture and can therefore move to our next segment. Time once again, once again, for Ken and Robin to recycle audio. Uh, once more, we're going back to the deep and pure water of the Gumshoe Adventure Masterclass Well, recorded at Gen Con this year. Once more, uh, we are joined by the delightful Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, uh, our fellow Gumshoe designer and creator, and a worthy fellow on all levels. So uh, let's pick things back up as Ken fields a question about improv mysteries. I think the first thing that you do with a, with a, something like the Armage Files or the Dracula dossier as the GM, if you're going to be running something improv, you run it on your home turf, right? If you are uh, an Egyptology grad student, you make that an archaeological adventure. You set it in Egypt. You make sure that there's mummies around or that there's a, a set cultist is the bad guy. You play to your strengths and you lure them onto your home ground and then destroy them. And I think that that is... That, that's so much the key to improv success is because if both the GM and the players are fumbling their way through, you know, you might accidentally sort of three stooges your way to victory, but it's going to seem weird. But if you are 
confident and you feel confident in the area that they're in, whether it's the theme or the monster or the setting or whatever it is, that you always have a, a, a silver bullet you can pull out, then you're going to be confident in the stuff that you make up that you have no idea about, about Spetsnaz tactics or about rainfall patterns or whatever it is that's also going to show up because you're like, doesn't matter if I bump the rainfall, when they get to the frickin' uh, pyramid, they are going down. I know this. And so you, you have that. And so if you, can, if you could get that confidence about any aspect of the story, build from there. And that might just be the confidence in, I really know how to make uh, Mitch sweat and, and, and cry to himself during the game, and I'm confident that I can make a story that Mitch is going to be terrified by. And that is the same kind of confidence. And you just use that in, in whatever. Uh, it, I mean, it obviously it helps to be widely read in whatever the topic area. If you're running a horror game, watch a lot of horror movies, read a lot of horror uh, fiction, read a lot of horror comic books or whatever. You know, have a stock of, of things you can go to moments, but uh, you know, knowing your turf is, I think, the absolute alpha uh, of improvisational gaming. And, uh, and the other thing I would suggest is just, um, in a way, it's actually easier to improvise a mystery than to write mysteries for other people to run because you have the advantage of being able to listen to your players discuss what they think is going on. So if you just start off with a few elements, you give them a question to answer at the beginning. Every mystery starts with a question and the question is, you know, here's a situation, what's going on here? And unlike when you're writing a prepared adventure, you don't answer that question yet. You just give them a couple of things that lead in a couple of directions, and they start questioning you about the situation. And whenever they ask you an interesting question that you can find an answer for, you answer those questions. So it's basically a big Q&A where you uh, get to decide what's real. And you want to stay one step ahead of the players so that uh, each question leads to a bunch of other questions that uh, are possibly unresolved. And then if you have a building block of you know, characters in place or things that might happen, uh, what's interesting about this place. So if they find themselves in a particular location, something you've decided what the first horrible thing is that they've encountered or Ashen stars you've decided what the contract is initially uh, and uh, something that you have in mind something that might go wrong with the contract and then you just let them lead you and they start going through that logical process while our goal is to rescue this hostage from this um, mining community that's gone nuts and been infested by an alien hive mind uh, so I guess our first step is to go to the space station that they were on before they were captured and find out what the deal is. Yeah, yeah. And so you just, okay, space station, uh, what are they going to, you know, just think ahead or, you know, wait for them to ask questions and have sort of a yes-anding technique where in this case you're thinking uh, yes and this tells you this other weird thing. The trick with that style is to keep good enough track of all the things that you've said so that there is still a coherent answer to whatever the, the mystery is. In this case, it would be, you know, why is there an alien hive mind in the mining colony? And because it's Ashen Stars, there should be a twist that introduces a moral dilemma. But you can keep various possibilities in mind until their actions narrow you down to the one thing that logically seems to make sense. And all, another thing that you can do is make those answers relate to the interesting things about the characters and their own arcs. So that if you've, uh, you know, got a kick thick character who has agreed uh, never to eat sentience, uh, sentient beings, but has is unclear as to whether a 
former human whose mind has been destroyed and is occupied by an alien hive mind, is that sentience really? It's just one part of a greater intelligence. If I devour this person who's already dead, uh, it doesn't diminish the hive mind in any way really. I'm not hurting the hive mind and the person is dead. And I've always wanted to eat <laughs> someone with this muscular structure. And normally I'm, not, I'm prevented from doing that. So if you start seeing those character possibilities, that means you really want to make sure that you move things along so that the kick thick finds out that all of these situations pertain and that his moral dilemma around uh, wanting to eat people but not starts to activate. And, and in addition to personal arcs, you can play to personal strengths. You can look at people's niche ability. Uh, in uh, Nice Black Agents, I advise, you know, make sure that there's a scene where the shooter gets to shoot, where the hacker gets to hack, where the driver gets to drive. If that hasn't happened in a while, you know, start sort of maybe bringing guys with guns and muscle cars onto the scene so that you can set that up to happen. Uh, I mean, it's easy, It's really easy with uh, Gumshoe because almost all of them are based on some media that we already know. And so with Knights Black Agents, for example, you can think, well, if this is a Bourne movie, what's the next scene? And we've all seen the Bourne movies. We know what the next scene's going to be. It's going to be a giant escrima fight in a modernist building. And so it's like, okay, there's a modernist building on the corner. I put a clue that points them into the modernist building. While they have the giant fight, I'm figuring out who they're fighting and why and what the you know stuff is that's on the laptop in the modernist building. And you have that ability to just know dramatically, not even necessarily logically, what the next scene should be, then the players will accept it because they're inside the dramatic universe. Clichés only look like clichés from outside. They look like, you know, what adventure, you know, finally a doorway from inside. What I would do, especially for like improvised vesicle stuff, is like mentally plan two or three scenes ahead, hold that idea as the absolute truth. This is what's definitely going to happen right now. Then, as the players move through scenes, if, I go, if as things change, go right. Here's the new ultimate truth that I will definitely follow. Because having a like, definite plan or a, a definite plan lets you foreshadow stuff, lets you make sure that everything's consistent, lets you to things build logically. And you always have that classic GM technique of listening to what they think is going on, often crazier than what you had in mind. Yeah. And then if you, uh, in an improvised uh, event mystery, you can then put a spin on that. Uh, to make it even one degree crazier more or something that leads into a personal story for one of the characters so that there's always a surprise on top of that and it's, it's the classic yes and improvising technique where you go, that's true and therefore this bunch of ghouls must be coming through the window because of this. Here we're asked about making clues compelling without spilling all the beans at once. I think a compelling clue is a clue that's interesting in the moment. Right, so uh, like Robin's advice is, if you think that you're not going to be able to interestingly describe an astronomy clue, have an interesting astronomer or an interesting astro astronomical hobbyist or an interesting telescope repairman or an interesting drunken slatternly daughter of an astronomer. You know, put something in there that is going to be an interesting thing to do in the moment, and then the clue will follow naturally. Um, in terms of if it gives away the whole answer. Nine times out of ten, that's actually kind of a bonus because you want the players to get to the answer at some point. It's very rarely that if you're actually constructing it in your head, and let's say you're doing a, um, uh, in a, a sort of a larger story arc in which the, the big bad is Jerry Brown, governor of California, that the first thing they find 
in the in this whole story as a matchbook saying remember to check our evil plans with Jerry Brown our heroic leader you know that isn't going to happen instead you're going to find maybe a you know California driver's license on more of the uh, on lots of the MOOCs or you're going to find little pieces of it if you just think of it the clue as little pieces of the of the of the orange that you're distributing out everyone gets a segment no one's going to get an orange that 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 helps but i think in pragmatic terms you almost never dump the whole answer to the mystery and if the players have proactively figured out a way that they should be able to get the whole answer to the mystery reward them and then yes and like robin says you know oh ho jerry brown is the bad guy we're going to storm the california capital and they and they and they get to him but he was actually, you know, a meat puppet for Nanothotep, or he's the advance guard of an alien invasion, or he's one brother's, uh, one character's clone, and they're like, oh my god, I didn't know I was the clone of Jerry Brown, how the hell did that happen? And you open up another door that they're so interested in going through, they don't feel cheated that they got the mystery faster than they should, which in an improv, improv game, of course, is a meaningless argument. I mean, it, it, it's only faster than they should if the pizza hasn't come yet, right? Um, and also, I mean, it's... It, Practically speaking, the number of times that you have to worry about the players being too clear on what is happening versus <laughs> they're being too confused because they've come up with six different possible theories of what's going on before going and collecting any of the information they need to know to have any indication of what's going on, uh, that's much more of the problem is impelling them to seek more information before they start to speculate and create uh, their narrative of what's going on out, out of nothing. But if it is a concern as you're uh, working on something and you go, oh, geez, it's really obvious, well, you know, why wouldn't the professor just uh, reveal everything about the secret atomic plant in this scene? Then the question is, well, well, why doesn't he? And what is his reason for not doing that? And then that overcoming that reason and removing it might be the thing. So you might, the professor, uh, you realize is, is lying to the players because his uh, daughter is being held hostage. And so instead of giving them the clue that explains everything, they get the clue that, that his daughter's being held hostage. And then that allows you an interesting scene where you can go, they can free the daughter, and then that makes it feel like much more of a victory when they do get that piece of information. One thing that always often comes up, at least in my experience, is where you're trying to do a twist where like you know, the villain is someone known to the player characters from the very first scene and you're going to, the, it's, the players go, you're trying to build up the revelation and the players go, aha, it was like you know, Jerry Brown, my good old friend all the time who's behind it all and he's been around since the start of the game and they suddenly turn him and you're like, it's, you've always been sort of stressed on behalf of the poor NPC who's like, has these tigers prowling after him what I'm trying to do there is have the NPC show up the first scene go, hey guys, I'm your good friend Jerry Brown I'll be over here on holiday now, take him out as much as you can, have him interact by phone, by indirect means, and then when the players find out the revelation, they go, oh, my God, he was behind us all along, we must now go and chase him down. Basically, if, you, if you're in danger of the players tripping over the answer too early, have the answer run away. Uh, another thing is to avoid info dumps, where, because often, especially in, in modern settings or futuristic settings, the impulse of players, just as it is of uh, adventure writers researching things <laughs> is to just go to the internet or get a, you know, let's take their hard drive. And then, so I'm always happy to have them capture the hard drive, but the, I don't say, so what's on the hard drive? And I say, what are you looking for on the hard drive? What's the question you want answered? So it's not just me, you know, I'm not going to spend 
half an hour listing the entire contents of the hard drive. They think they want that, but they sure wouldn't if I did it. And so turn as much possible into a Q&A. Uh, you know, and often the reason that they don't get the piece of information that they want from an, a witness, uh, even though logically they might give it, is they just don't think to ask because they don't have the context to ask. Yeah, the, the, the number of, of real life cases in which, you know, the cops come back to the guy, the same witness three, four, five times, and the fifth time they come by and the guy says, oh, and also there was a guy in a brown raincoat uh, leaving the scene. And they're like, why didn't you say that in the first interview? I didn't know it was important. Like, but yeah. that, that happens in the real world as well as in mystery fiction. So you feel free to you know, have that happen if that's what you need to make happen. And then ideally what you want, because the real world is unsatisfying dramatically, is to have a compelling reason that they didn't notice, you know, that, they, you know, that their kid was being threatened or that they were distracted by some other element of the story, whatever it happens to be. And the final question of the Gumshoe Adventure Masterclass seminar concerns slowing the players down so they don't complete the entire adventure in a mad 24-hour rush. In that situation, presumably they've sort of hit a legwork wall, right? Where they've got all of the information they can. It's one of those ongoing cases where there's a serial killer at work and they have to wait until there's another killing before they get more information. So you just allied the time. You say, okay, you've got all this, and after uh, a week of... Uh, stomach-churning tedium while you're waiting for something to happen and you're uh, drinking horrible coffee and there's a montage sequence of you staring at the computer screens, a call comes in so that you do it with uh, you know, just the same time uh, rendering techniques that you would in, in fiction. Yeah, use, use every chance that you can to sort of fast-forward it during that time. If they're saying, um, uh, we're, we're, we're going to go interview this guy. You say, okay, it, uh, you know, and you say it's, it's 3.15 when you interview this guy. Now we're going to interview, all right, it's 5.30. Um, he's left work. He's gone home. You know, you can catch him tomorrow. Uh, it's like, okay, we'll catch him tomorrow. And then you say, all right, the next day, at his office, bright and early, you've ambushed him, clever you, and now he's gonna, you're going to make him sweat. But what you did is you just bought a night in which they're not going out on stakeout somewhere. Just use the opportunities to, to advance time as you can. If what they really, really want to do is play a taut 24-hour thriller, you know, fine. If that's what they want, give that to them. But if, if your mission doesn't resolve in 24 hours... There's, you know, at, at the worst, you can do what Robin, you know, suggests is hold up, you know, the metaphorical scene card and say, yep. seriously, guys, your years of experience in occult mystery solving or police work tells you that there's nothing that can be done until another element breaks. You are, you're good enough detectives to know that you don't have enough information, that what you really need are breaks in one of these three areas and get them thinking, you know, strategically, again, not tactically. And, and also you can introduce the discomforts of the situation so it's like and it gets really cold out while you're it's bone chilling now yeah, the, or it starts to rain or you know whatever the real practical reasons why wife calls yes. yes exactly or this is the 20th straight hour you've been on this case everyone's athletics is down by three yeah and everyone's health is down by three then make your stability check to make sure that you're not like having you know weird floaty things in your eye you, you suddenly realize that you've got 15 minutes to get to your daughter's dance recital yeah the other thing is, if you come against that, against that wall, stop yeah. looking at your supremacy, like, why is there a timetable for the NPCs, why is it that long, can I make some of these things floating events, that basically, you know, when the game lags, uh, more bad guys show up, or like, the bad guys advance their plan, if, uh, if you based on like, you know, the bad guys really do it at the solstice, can we start one day before the solstice, instead of like, you know, a week before the solstice? Well, I think we're reaching the end of our appointed time. 
Uh, so we'd just like to thank you all for coming. Uh, we know that this uh, event uh, was not uh, cited until late, but uh, we love all your questions and thank you for asking them. And thanks for your continued interest in gumshoe. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we've once more stepped into close proximity to Ken's time machine. That, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to dispatch Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this week, we're going to pull a perennial topic out of our perennial topic drawer, and that is shortening the U.S. Civil War. Ken, how would you make uh, what is... Uh, one of the worst, most brutal, and not coincidentally first modern war in history, if not less modern, uh, less brutal, and just plain shorter. Well, shorter will make it less modern, because a lot of what we know to be modern trench warfare, uh, the first combat use of machine guns, barbed wire, um, fortific- or not barbed wire fortifications, but wire fortifications, things like that emerged as the war went on, railroads and telegraphs, the industrialization of the mobilization began uh, with the war. Railroad engineers and railroad managers were brought on. Uh, McClellan, famously, of course, was a, was a great railroad uh, manager, and that's why people thought he'd be very good at managing uh, an army. And indeed, he was great at managing an army. He was just not super great at commanding an army. And on the notion of shortening the Civil War, the key to make it really, really short is to get Robert E. Lee to stay a Union general instead of become a Confederate general. At at the time that Virginia seceded, he uh, had to think about it a bit. His wife was a Unionist, for example, which in my marriage would have meant that I would have stayed with the Union, regardless of my personal (laughs) opinions. Um, His his daughter was the only person who favored secession, which is an interesting generational note in his immediate family. I don't know that it's possible to, on that kind of time-traveling short notice, to show up and be there in the, in the, in the Lee family home, surreptitiously uh, fortifying the iced tea to the extent that Robert E. Lee uh, agrees to uh, stay with the Union. But I think it might be possible, by jiggery-pokery with his command in Texas, to put him in a position where he has opened fire on Confederate rebels. He was serving under a man named General David Twiggs, who was a Georgia native. And Twiggs was made uh, commander of the Department of Texas. And and following the rule that all uh, figures in Civil War history have to have great surnames. Yes, right. And he therefore uh, realized that with a boss last name like Twiggs, he was born to be a Confederate general, and he surrendered the entire Union military establishment to the Texan uh, secessionist. Now, this is a situation in which Texas was not, you know, unified necessarily as a secessionist. Sam Houston, the the, the great uh, Texan and, and governor of that state, was firmly against it, refused to take an oath to Confederacy. He did not want to fight the Civil War in Texas. Part of the reason he didn't take the oath of the Confederacy was he knew that the Confederacy would lose, and he didn't want to be on the losing side of anything. But he also was a unionist, uh, a very staunch unionist. And so, if instead of David Twiggs, you have a young Robert E. Lee as the commander of the Department of Texas, rather than resisting his own citizens' blandishments, his, his fellow Virginians, he is resisting a bunch of, of barbarian Texans. And you can 
imagine, certainly, a situation where a time traveler has salted his correspondence with letters from his wife and perhaps uh, hidden the letters from his daughter, has joined him at headquarters at the Alamo and shared a reviving um, uh, Texas T or nine. And then at the at, at when uh, push comes to shove and you have, uh, <laughs> speaking of people with terrific last names, there's a guy named, I think it's uh, Samuel Maverick, is <laughs> one of the guys who shows up to uh, demand uh, the Union surrender at Texas, and Twiggs does uh, so. And that's because uh, Samuel Wardude was under the weather that day. Samuel Wardude was under the weather. And um, so uh, Twiggs, uh, if you have Twiggs you know, sent off to, to some other mission, uh, you put uh, Lee in charge of that. I think you can probably get a situation where the first shots of the Civil War are fired by Union Colonel, or Brevet Colonel, Robert E. Lee, on... Texan secessionists. And once he's done that, I think it will be much harder for him to make the decision to join the Confederacy, regardless of what the South does, what Virginia does. 40%, after all, of Virginia's officers served the, with the Union. They, they did not follow uh, Lee into treason. And so I think that it's, it's an interesting possibility. And then once you have Lee in that position, Lincoln, even without Lee having uh, put down insurrection, offered him the command of the entire Union Army. And one does not have to have bought entirely into the myth of the Marble Man to say that Robert E. Lee would have been a considerably better commander of the Union Army than the first five or six guys that did. It's not until 1863, and really 1864, that you get someone who's better than Lee in that job. Right, and if you get someone who has the sort of superior technological might of the North... It's going to be a shorter mm-hmm. war. Right, absolutely. Uh, and so putting Lee in charge early and getting him to declare for the Union implicitly by firing on Texans is, I think, the way to go. And he would have the support of Sam Houston, uh, at least after the fact. And he would probably have... He, he, there, there's more infrastructure around Lee staying in the Union than people who want uh, Lee to be a, a core part of their lost cause tend to understand. So when you meet Lee, what kind of a man do you meet? What what uh, who, who is this guy? Um, Lee is Lee is actually you know again the, the the myth of the Marble Man that he's this sort of perfect remote gentleman is like a lot of myths. It's built on on a fundamental truth. I mean he is uh, he, he is in that tradition that almost vanished tradition by then that saw stoicism and family and and reputation as the coin in which you would have to deal. And it's not impossible, I think, that you could even maybe get Lee to go with Lincoln's office if you just show up in Lincoln's outer office and you say, Colonel Lee, I'm a time traveler, I'm from the future, and I'm here to show you Bruce Catton's illustrated history of the Civil War. (laughs) And he might very well at that point say, you know what? He believed uh, that slavery, while unfortunate for everyone, was there until God said it was going to go away. I think if you say... Look, uh, General Lee, God is about to say in fairly unmistakable terms that Southern slavery has to go away. Maybe you'd like to be on the winning side. Maybe you'd like to keep the bloodshed down. That might work. Uh, Lee is, um, he is, he is overrated by a lot of his fans, but that does not mean that he is not fundamentally as a, a moral person who operates within a code of morality that you can be recognized and can be you know, it's celebrated, really. Uh, barring the treason and the slave-owning, there's nothing wrong with Robert E. Lee, is what I guess I'm trying right. to say. Right, so in the timeline where he is in charge of the Union Army, and uh, not the Confederate Army, how does that uh, go down? How does it resolve itself in a shorter war? I believe that Lee begins by... Uh, Lee is going to begin 
by doing a lot of the same things that uh, McClellan wanted to do, he's just going to do them faster. But McClellan, at this point, has got a, a really great subordinate named William Rosecrans, who basically saves West Virginia for the Union. Uh, and then once he gets good enough at it that he has to start asking McClellan's permission, McClellan starts turning him down. And that's why the border is there instead of further on into Virginia. So is Rosecrans served by a Lieutenant uh, Guildenstern by any chance? <laughs> there may or may not have been a Lieutenant Guildenstern somewhere in the Union Army to hang out with Rosecrans. Um, uh, the possibilities for, for Tom Stoppard's Civil War drama are, are not yet exhausted, I think. So you have, you have that situation. You have basically the sort of, you know, literally the bull run to bull run that was the, what passed for Union strategy. Lee probably could not have made that work, but I don't think Lee would have tried that. I think Lee would have fought a holding action in front of Washington, moved the front as far south as he could, then stabilized it, and in his traditional way, moved around. I think that you might very well have seen the approach from the west rather than the peninsular campaign coming in from the east. I think that if you put McClellan in charge of the holding action, for example, you still do the peninsular campaign, McClellan is a subordinate of Lee, and you put him in charge of moving slowly, slowly, slowly up the east coast, and Lee is in charge of making it impossible for the Confederacy to concentrate against McClellan, you could very easily end the war in 1862. You could possibly end the war in 1861, although I hesitate to say that a completely unblooded Confederacy is going to roll over quite that fast. But by 1862, you've got Grant has basically taken the Ohio out of the strategic picture for the, for the South. He's moving down the Tennessee. You're getting close to cutting off the Mississippi. You're not quite there, but New Orleans has fallen. I think it's very possible that you, you end the war sometime in 1862. The downside to that is that you end the war before the Emancipation Proclamation becomes politically necessary. And so President Lincoln probably then has to run again in 1864 on a very forthright uh, program of manumission, which would have likely resembled something on the order of the Brazilian manumission, where the slave owners are paid some market cap value for all their slaves. The slaves are given freedom and land and then <laughs> and then abandoned, essentially, which is still pretty awful, but it beats being a slave in the middle of the Civil War, I suspect. So a lot of the fault lines uh, that you still see in American society today uh, date back from the Civil War, whether you're looking at uh, electoral maps or how a lot of the clashing between different uh, subcultures works out. Does this ameliorate that at all, or does the fact that the uh, resolution is less apocalyptic uh, retrench them even more? I think that you get more diehards, but the diehards are... It, it's harder for them to build a myth, right? If they are beaten by a Virginian who stays loyal, that's a much different mythology, and it has to be a different mythology. And maybe Lee is considered by, by uh, the South as the great traitor in this history that he was in our history. And But that narrative is never going to be dominant because they lost. And Americans don't like losers. So you're going to have the Deep South is absolutely going to stay opposed to the Republican Party for, you know, uh, you know uh, at least 100 years that it did in our history. Um, because... If Lincoln wins in 1864, as one suspect he would, on a manumission platform, they're not going to have enjoyed that at all. And there is going to be, I, I think maybe you might wind up seeing a sort of a weird uh, populist 
uh, level of anti-federal activity. Uh, so you might see the sort of the Granger populist West uh, turn away from the Republicans, certainly after Lincoln leaves office. And once you uh, start having to pick which of Lincoln's ideological successors gets to be president. I mean, again, in a, in a world without the war, Ulysses S. Grant does not get to become president, and Andrew Johnson does not get to become president. It's going to wind up being a, a northern banker or a creation of a northern banker, much like in the 1880s. And so it's going to be very difficult, I think, for the Republican Party to become the vast national party that it became under McKinley eventually. And, and so you may wind up seeing the Republican Party, after manumission is accomplished, give way to a new a Whig party that then uh, gets to be the uh, minority party against the Democrat populist axis and whether the populists or the Democrats can unify is what depends on whether or not there's a Democratic president. So you're not likely actually to result in sort of uh, our timeline, but smoothed over a bit. You're going to have actually, uh, chances are a radically different present where, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act, where did, where does that happen? Does it happen uh, did it happen earlier? Are we still fighting for it? It's, does uh, it happen on a, on a purely state-by-state -state level? I mean, ironically, does the absence of a, a large union fight uh, against states' rights, I mean, does that mean that state-by-state -state solutions on these kinds of national questions are still uh, looked at as, as, as plausible answers? Um, I, I, th I think that the federalization of the slave question is going to drive the notion that there should be a federal civil rights act, but I don't know whether absent um, a decisive defeat for the South and the ability of the South to paint it as, you know, sort of a betrayal, I mean, sort of a stab in the back mythology, if you will, that the rich folk uh, all ganged up against them. Um, that's going to be a hard narrative to sell, given it's obviously the plantation owners that, uh, that, that, that kept the slaves. But I, I think that it's... You, you, you're winding up with a situation where you very well could have... Uh, civil rights still be a, a, a burning issue in a lot of ways, even though there's you, you've uh, you know avoided you know some years of slavery and many more years in some cases of of, of Jim Crow because some of the border states are not ever going to have it because they don't feel like they lost right. really you know Tennessee is is not necessarily going to go for Jim Crow because half of Tennessee was unionist to begin with Virginia the same deal if if West Virginia remember, is still part of Virginia, right? It doesn't secede, quote-unquote, until 1863. It, then it's electorally going to be pulling Virginia away from the, the, the slave party. So you're going to see some, some real differentiations. But I, I think that the question of, of how federal civil rights law is, is maybe still going to be an open question as opposed to a settled one like it is in our time. And so uh, roughly how many fewer dead are there in, under this uh, plan where uh, Robert E. Lee fights for the North? I think you save about half a million uh, lives in, in this one. The, the, the Civil War killed 600,000 people, and I think that you, you still get Shiloh, but you avoid uh, Gettysburg, you avoid Antietam, you avoid uh, the whole uh, Sherman through the South, you, you avoid that whole campaign, uh, you, you don't wind up with class after class after class of Confederate boys being grafted or, or in many cases being um, uh, conscripted unofficially into the army. You don't have the Union draft ever, necessarily. And so you don't wind up with the, these sorts of mass uh, armies that are all dying of, of typhus and of uh, other horrible diseases while they're waiting around to shoot each other with... Um, uh, <laughs> with round shot. Oh man, it's just, it's just such an unbelievably staggering number that's uh, difficult to uh, get your head around and difficult to come up with a fun segue out of. So let's not even try. 
<laughs> right, let's just blow taps over this segment and let the, the, the calm words of Ken Burns take us away. Yeah, so uh, next week will be our uh, live from Gen Con episode that we recorded there while I am uh, soaking in uh, four to five films a day at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival. So From which you will return to tell us more vital things. Yes, I will have a lot of Korean movies to tell you about, Ken. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Stop us from engaging in brother-on-brother conflict by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or paramilitary law enforcement agency by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>